Hello and welcome to the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a live monthly news review satirizing the dumb month that was through hilarious op-ed and rip-roaring debate. This particular show was recorded on August 1st, 2018. Enjoy. Yes! A little, a little longer. Just pretend, pretend like you're happy to be here. Hello. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Skewer. We got a little... Welcome to The Skewer. If you have not been to The Skewer before, it is a delightful live monthly news review where we satirize the previous month. You know the one. You just lived it. Uh, We got some delightful writers, some top-tier writers, some all-star writers reading some op-eds of the previous month. What's an op-ed, you say? Is that that terrible thing from the New York Times? It's named the same, but these ones are good. Um, And then we're going to cap the show off with a delightful debate that you're going to like in a big way. I am your host, Tom Harrison. I will guide you on this delightful tour of our hell world. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. I will begin tonight by reading these words I wrote on a page. If you watched the news this month, and if you did, I'm sorry... The big stories involved the entire media class losing their collective minds over Trump deferring to Putin and Michael Cohen revealing that Trump had paid off one of his mistresses. You remember these big, these big stories. The treason summit, the Cohen tapes, bombshell stories. You know, stuff that literally everyone in this room already assumed was true in November 2016. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, I prefer there to be negative press about him than not, but it is fucking surreal to see pundits on TV with big alert alert graphics all around them sternly tut-tutting about the earth-shattering revelation. There, now we got it. Okay. Sternly tut-tutting about the earth-shattering revelation that Donald Trump is a stupid criminal. We, we know. We, the media spent entire days this month opining about how shocking and unacceptable it was for Donald Trump to behave normally. In the way every fucking action he's done his entire life would lead you to believe that he would. I feel like I'm unstuck in time here. What year is it? Why are you freaking out just now? We are past surprise time. It is action time. Please do something. Living in the world today feels like every single person in the world is like chained to a folding chair in a big room, uh, and we're all forced to watch 10 productions of Waiting for Godot every single day. And every couple of weeks, the cops bust in, guns drawn, and they all look disgusted when they see what's going on, like they found a trafficking ring, like, ugh, oh, the humanity. And we're all like, fuck yes, we're saved, we're free, it's over. And the cops are just get in front of everyone and be like, you won't believe this shocking news. 
Godot never shows up. <laughs> anyway, that's all. And we're like, ah, oh, fuck! <laughs> Another line I wanted to use, but I didn't find a way to get it in there, is uh, if you still support Estragon, you're not a patriot. <laughs> Man, I was so ready for that whole thing to not work. I was like... <laughs> I was discussing this with Erica literally yesterday. Like, so Erica, the waiting for Godot thing. I'm not going to cut it if you say no because I love it. But does it work? And she gave me a look. And I was like, uh, but hey, miracles do happen. This next bit of patter uh, assumed that you didn't laugh at that. But I really like it, so I'm going to say it anyway. Listen, everybody, I have an English degree. I have, to, I have to put it to you somewhere. I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Um, we didn't actually read any Beckett at DePaul. We read manga Hamlet. Yeah, it was, it was very bad. Everyone had, it, was, it took place in the future, which you could tell, because everyone had a little tube that went from here to here. Anyway, I didn't even take notes on the news this month. Usually I keep just a running uh, thing in notes that I can refer to when I'm writing these pieces. Uh, but so little of the news last month felt new to me. The world has trained me to just always assume the dumbest and meanest possible things are going to happen, and I'm always right every time. <laughs> Listen, I used to believe in things. I felt joy, often. I started a live lit show with no monetization plan because I thought it sounded fun. I was like a little kitten in a satin blanket. But two years of the Trump administration has worn that out of me. I know to expect every explosive new revelation to be like, Breaking news, Trump is rude. We hate that. <laughs> this is how much of a pessimist I am now. I am convinced, like I believe unironically deep in my bones with no doubt whatsoever that Donald Trump will live to be 200 years old. <laughs> And by that, I don't mean that he's going to, like, buy a robo-body or that he's going to, like, replace his blood with child blood or upload his brain to the net, like, or, or some other rich person life-extending scheme. I mean he'll just forget to die. <laughs> the time will come, and he'll just be too dumb to realize what he's supposed to do. He'll just keep going, turning even more into a pile of dog shit. The sound of his bellow echoing over the universe forever. I, I believe this. On the same token, another thing that I believe beyond any doubt, although I will grant that there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, is that secretly, Robert Mueller can't read. <laughs> like... I'm convinced that he is literally illiterate. Like, he's still in his office looking at that first memo, like, uh, so... 
Which of these words is Russia? <laughs> if it sounds like I'm stressed, it's because I am. I haven't been able to relax much lately because most of my time has been spent preparing for my wedding in late August. It says here, hold for applause, shame them if they do not. So good job. Shame-free crowd. Uh, and it, it's not to say that I am stressed about the wedding. The wedding is going to rule. I'm super excited for it. But it's been hard to allow myself to feel the kind of joy and hope that an occasion like this brings. It's a struggle to balance excitement for an event as inherently selfish as a wedding with the carnival hell world that spins around us. And I know that it's wrong to frame my own wedding as selfish, like imagine how happy my mom is going to feel. But, where did I, but I couldn't stop myself from doing it. I kept thinking, what did I do to deserve something good? This country is still imprisoning and torturing children in concentration camps it's very likely no effort will ever be made to reunite them with their families, and the people responsible will never be punished. Uh, the Democrats don't look like they'll have the courage to block a Supreme Court nominee who will overturn Roe v. Wade. The crucial November midterm is being threatened by both Russian interference and good old-fashioned down-home American-style voter suppression. There will probably be water wars in the next decade. My ability to live a happy life in relative prosperity and comfort is almost entirely thanks to massive amounts of privilege that I did not earn. Privilege that millions of better people than me suffer for not having. And I know that I should just separate those two things in my mind. We all know about self-care. You know, you gotta take time for yourself so that you can be an effective force for justice. It's easy to say it, but it's really fucking difficult to actually do. I don't have an answer other than that we must do what we can. One thing that we can do is we can fucking vote. We must fucking vote. Now that's not a platitude. It often is. I thought it was for a long time. But... Two months ago, Democratic Socialist candidate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her primary won her primary in New York against a big money corporate dem and is now fundraising for progressive candidates nationwide. We have voter registration forms right there in Erica Dreisbach's hands. If you are not registered, you if you don't know how to fill out the form, it doesn't matter, we'll do it for you. If you leave here not registered to vote, I will consider it a personal assault on me. On me. How dare you? Another good thing, uh, they found in Egypt a mysterious obsidian sarcophagus. And when they opened it up, it was full of bones swimming in a mysterious red fluid. And folks, I drank the fluid, and I have, I have powers now. I can see the souls of man through the crimson eye of Ra. <laughs> and I can turn into a crocodile when I'm in the Nile. <laughs> it was good fluid. 
what I'm saying is, it is a nightmare task to have to balance a pleasant personal life with the vicious, absurd injustices of our reality. It is so easy to lose yourself in it. I do a lot. But guess what? In three weeks, I'm going to get married. And it is going to be fucking fantastic. I deserve it, and it will make me feel great. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to cry. I'm going to be content. That's real. It won't make the bad go away. That'll always be there, and I'll always feel it. But the happiness is real, too. It's real, and it's there for all of us. It won't erase the pain, but it's there. And if there's any hope for any of us, we have to make time to remember it. In conclusion, this month, I think it's impressive I wrote anything at all. Thank you. Oh, we got a great show for you tonight. Oh, we got some fine writers, some great writers that are going to make you laugh in a big way. But before we get to the op-eds, I want to I wanna let you guys play a fun game. Who wants to play a fun game? <laughs> Radical. I would like to welcome to the stage the host of our fun game, Kevin Johnson. <laughs> I like how Tom always asks, you guys want to play a game? And it's like, you don't have a fucking choice. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I want to give them the illusion. Anyway, Kevin, what's our fun game? Uh, it's like two truths and a lie, except it's with the news. And so it, like, matters. Yeah. Three, three news headlines. One's fake. Pick it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, what do people win if they were to uh, just come up on stage and, and like sort of do a mediocre job? Uh, if you do a mediocre job like everyone that's ever played this game, uh, you get a nice sticker. Yay! Yay! And Kevin. Yeah. What do you win if you do the impossible, come up on stage and completely ace the quiz? Uh, now that you're back on stage, you get this book. <laughs> that is the best of 2017, The Skewers, in essay format, and they're great. You also get a sticker if you really wanted a sticker, and I will also give you one of my drink tickets. Yeah, that's that's a whole bunch of shit. Anyway, I'm gonna need I'm gonna need a volunteer, or someone will be voluntold. I, uh, I challenge you. Hi, I have been volunteered. Hello. What, what, is, what is your name? My name is Igor. All right. Okay. All right, all right, cool. I can't believe I've seen you before. Anyway, I'm going to give you your first set of questions. Question one. San Francisco mayor says her city is drowning in poop. She quotes says... There's more feces than I've ever seen. <laughs> Story two. Pete Davidson's tattoo artist prevented him from getting the words big dick energy on his forearm. <laughs> Story three. Uh, a study finds the Chicago accents are not sexy at all. <laughs> Which one of those is false? Mm. <laughs> oh, I think one, but uh, so might as well the first one. 
Oh no, the city, San Francisco is just drowning in shit. That is true. <laughs> that is fucking true. Pete Davidson's uh, fucking tattoo artist told him to stop with the girlfriend tats. I don't know. Whatever. All right, your second set of stories. Uh, London police chief completely comfortable using a facial recognition uh, technology that is 98% in error. <laughs> Which is, that's pretty fucking high. Uh, second story. A study says millennials cannot afford homes because of bachelor parties and weddings. Tom. <laughs> it's Emmy or, or a house, I guess. Um, your third story. Teens dress up like the, Chick- the Chuck E. Cheese band and destroyed <laughs> Speaker of House Paul Ryan's car. <laughs> ah, all right. Yeah. Number two sounds like bullshit. So. It is bullshit, but that is a real headline. <laughs> it's, it's, you, you are both right and wrong. Um, the teens did not dress up like the Chuck E. Cheese ba- band. He uh, instead claims a family of woodchucks actually <laughs> fucked up his SUV. I, I, don't, I don't know what the fuck they did. Anyway, uh, okay, for your final set of stories. Um, first, they stole a shark in a baby stroller and briefly got away with it. Whatever the fuck that means. Uh, story two, investigators say a Nigerian shaman who was reportedly saved by a bulletproof charm was actually wearing a Kevlar vest. Um, Three, a teen burglar wakes up a California couple and asks to use their Wi-Fi. Alright, well, I know number one is true, so... Number three? No. He totally asks to use their Wi-Fi, which is like, what the fuck? Anyway, um, so the Nigerian healer dude... um, he, he was like, I got this bulletproof charm, and it turns out it wasn't, and he died. <laughs> I wasn't a happy end to that story, but it was unexpected. Yay, we did it. You, go, you, get a, you get a nice sticker. You came up on the stage. Because, because unlike all of you in the crowd, you're not just sitting there being like, oh, I knew the answer to that. Get on the stage and prove it, motherfuckers. Anyway, uh, let's welcome back to the stage... Host for the evening, Tom Harrison. Thank you to Kevin Johnson for yet another unbeatably difficult (laughs) round of the news quiz. There will be one more opportunity to best the quiz later in the show if you want to uh, get both the book and history. Anyway, (laughs) on to the op-ed portion of the show, our first op-ed writer loves a lot of things, like hugs, high fives, and nachos, and is afraid of even more things, like heights, the future, and city drivers with strong emotions. <laughs> She's a full-time copywriter for a toy company and freelances for beauty and satire sites. Please hire her to write for you. Please welcome to the stage, Callie Hack! before, but apparently millennials are killing everything. <laughs> it's like a generation of King Midas's if King Midas was in crippling debt and everything he touched turned to a meme. <laughs> or a generation of Medusa's 
but if Medusa had crippling debt <laughs> and every, every industry that our parents' generation loved turned to socialism. <laughs> and in the latest trend of serial killings that millennials have murdered into the ground is the middle child. How many here are middle children? Oh my God, you all are so quiet because you know nobody cares about you. I'm a middle child too, so I get it, I get it. <laughs> We're a dying birth order, you guys. We are going extinct. And I myself am a millennial, an old millennial, and also a middle child, and I am not doing anything to save my own kind. I have no money and no children, let alone multiple children, in order to have middle children. <laughs> and I get it, kids are expensive. Apparently raising one child can cost upwards of a quarter million dollars. Today I was a nickel short when I wanted to buy fruit snacks from the vending machine. <laughs> so no, I don't have children money. <laughs> I went around the office trying to get a nickel, asking for spare pocket change, and like nobody had any, <laughs> um, but I did get a lecture on how nickels aren't actually made of real nickel anymore, <laughs> which did nothing for my sugar craving, but since I'm a middle child and like desperate for intimacy, I just patiently listened to this lecture, <laughs> um, so I still need fruit snacks if you guys have any. <laughs> um, but my point is, I understand wanting to kill us off. Um, I'm, a middle, I'm a middle child, and I joke about dying all the time on Twitter. So what I know is that it's not millennials' fault. They, they're just not having large families. It's a generation without religion, um, without religion, money, or family farmland to tend to. So there's no practical reason for middle children to exist which is all middle children's fear confirmed. <laughs> it's the exact crux of what it means to have middle child syndrome. And now no one has paid attention to us so much to the point that we're all dying out, like little tinkerbells that have no pans anymore to clap for them. <laughs> and as much as I understand and empathize, which, by the way, empathy is a truly unique trait to all middle children. As long as, as much as I understand and empathize um, with the fact that nobody wants a really large family anymore, I do have to say, you all are going to miss us. Which is also a very middle child thing to say. Be like, like a little kid being like, you'll be sorry when I'm dead. And then... <laughs> But then parents are like, but I'll have a quarter million in the bank. <laughs> so if I ever feel sorry, I'll just check my savings. <laughs> but middle children are typically, typically known as being overlooked or forgotten, not given parental attention that maybe a firstborn or the youngest may receive. Um, my own origin story, as hack family folklore goes, uh, when I was born, my dad forgot to pack a baby bag to bring to the hospital. So he ran back home uh, to get some baby clothes to bring me home in, but he couldn't find the bag. So he picked out his old bartending t-shirt from a bag of, a garbage bag of clothes and brought that to the hospital, wrapped me up in. And so 
my welcoming into the world was so overlooked that I was swaddled in beer t-shirts plucked from a trash bag. <laughs> a classic middle child tale. <laughs> but because middle children are overlooked as it is thought, that is exactly what has encouraged us to have a keen sense for injustices, empathy, and creativity. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Britney Spears, all middle children. <laughs> so when our generation, the pa millennial parents, start having children, and they are being smart, mindful, proactive, and having just enough children that they are able to pay attention to, we are doing a disservice to our society. <laughs> it's going to be a world filled of oldest, youngest, or onlys. What a horror, you guys. <laughs> Can you imagine a world where everyone is adequately loved? <laughs> no. no, thank you. <laughs> there have been studies that have shown that most firstborns go on to become CEOs, and most youngest become comedians, uh, but not because they didn't get enough love, because they got too much love, and that is terrifying. <laughs> So the world is going to burn without us middles. And so Kevin Liam, the man who wrote the book on birth order, said losing middle children isn't good for any of us. Middle children are like the PB&J in the sandwich, and pretty soon we're just going to be bread on bread. <laughs> and you know the bread industry is dying too. We all have gluten allergies. <laughs> so we're going to have nothing but a boring-ass world to look forward to. Oreos without cream, the rule of three with only two. We'll be playing rock, paper, scissors with just paper and scissors. It's going to be a lot less joy in this world, but we'll never actually know why because nobody cares about us anyway. <laughs> Thank you. One more round of applause for Callie Hack. Fantastic. Oh man, I'm a youngest child, and as you can tell, I completely fulfill everything you'd expect. I'm a sprightly little imp who instead of getting a terminal degree like all my siblings, had to read manga Hamlet. Anyway, moving right along to our next op-ed reader. Our next reader, Devin Whitlock, was born and raised in New Jersey when George W. Bush's head of the EPA, Christine Todd Whitman, was governor, and he has vowed never to return. <laughs> His work has appeared on GeeksOut.com and Comicosity, and he's been published in Mel Magazine. He co-hosts the Chicago Public Library's graphic novel book club that meets every third Wednesday at the Map Room. Please welcome Devin Whitlock! <laughs> Oh, thank you. There was some great science news this month. A neutrino was discovered in Antarctica and traced to a galaxy 3.7 billion light years away, providing a fascinating glimpse at the age of the universe and Earth's place in it. I would love to talk more about this, but I lack the knowledge and skill. Instead, I'll talk about Scott Pruitt. <laughs> 
President Trump's head of the Environmental Protection Agency finally resigned on July 6th, which could be considered a victory for science given how opposed he was to it. The hypocrite's trinity for Trump's evangelical base was Mike Pence representing the belief that zygotes and blastocysts deserve more rights than women and queer people, Betsy DeVos representing how anyone worth at least $1 billion must be blessed by God, and Scott Pruitt who represented a rejection of all science and intellectualism that makes people of faith look stupid. He held Bible studies with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who uses the same verses that justified slavery to keep children in cages, and Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Ben Carson, who believes the pyramids of Giza are grain silos from the book of Genesis. (laughs) The antipathy to scientific fact held by the evangelical community cannot be overstated positing themselves as the protectors of objective truth because of their adherence to biblical principles, they seek to undermine that which is legitimately objective, namely scientific fact, at every turn. One of the first books I ever owned was a gift from my aunt and had a picture on the cover of dinosaurs being led onto Noah's Ark. (laughs) My cousin, her daughter, told me her main reason for doubting climate change is because it isn't mentioned in the book of Revelation and she believes we're living in the end times, which may be the one thing on which many people here agree with her. (laughs) Scott Pruitt exited as he served, stupidly and obsequiously. In a resignation letter signed, Your Faithful Friend, he described the president's confidence in him as something that has blessed me personally and enabled me to advance your agenda beyond what anyone anticipated. I count it as a blessing to be serving you in any capacity, he continued. My desire in service to you has always been to bless you. I believe you are serving as president today because of God's providence. I believe that same providence brought me into your service. I pray as I have served you that I have blessed you and enabled you to effectively lead the American people. It goes on from there, but I don't have the stomach to do so. He became the head of the... You're welcome. He became the head of the EPA because he denies climate change, but he quickly became known for scandal. Spending taxpayer money on a $43,000 soundproof phone booth, a $4.6 million security detail, a $50 a night condo rented from a lobbyist's wife, providing unauthorized raises, keeping two separate calendars, possibly three. That's an incomplete list not including the five ethics investigations he was under at the time of his resignation. And not even the pettiest bullshit, like how he, asked, he was asked to stop eating so frequently at the White House cafeteria. <laughs> In the cartoonish workplace sitcom that is this administration, unfunny because it is so evil, Scott Pruitt was the guy hiding a steak under some lettuce leaves and trying to pay for a salad. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if we learned that he went to state dinners with his pockets lined with plastic bags in order to steal gravy. (laughs) When a woman confronted him in a restaurant, he was probably secretly pleased to have an excuse to round on the check. But on July 6th, 2018, Scott Pruitt resigned. His scandals caught up with him, and he had no other choice. (laughs) I'm sorry. Just kidding. The exact reason is unclear, but we know it wasn't that. (laughs) 
He okayed a 3% increase on ethanol fuel quotas for 2019, which pissed off farmers who represent an even larger voting block for Trump than people who believe dinosaur bones were placed in the ground by Satan. Another theory is that he resigned because word got out that he was campaigning to be attorney general, which must have made those Bible studies with Jeff Sessions awkward. <laughs> if that had happened, we probably wouldn't be facing a religious liberty task force, but a task force to help Scott Pruitt steal office furniture. <laughs> Scott Pruitt was as incompetent as he was corrupt, and that's saying something. He successfully convinced Trump to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords, but we can't do that until 2020. He wanted to go after the oil fuel efficiency rule, the clean water rule, and the clean power plan, but none of that happened because of court challenges. Even his fuck you move on the way out the door, where he scaled back regulation against super polluting glider semi-trucks, which was condemned by both truckers and environmental activists, was put on hold by the US Court of Appeals. But these were seen as victories, not just by politicians and capitalists who believe all regulation must end, but by the Christians who believe climate change is merely a distraction to get people to stop focusing on their souls. Meanwhile, wildfires broke out in the Arctic Circle this week. <laughs> Floods and deadly heat have struck Japan within two weeks. Reporters invented the term fire tsunami to describe what's been going on in Colorado. <laughs> The EPA is one of the few things for which we have to thank Richard, I am not a crook Nixon, despite his corruption. Scott, definitely a crook Pruitt, provided a whole Harding administration's worth of corruption in just one man. That joke would have killed in the 30s. <laughs> At least the guy who orchestrated the Teapot Dome scandal was a millionaire by the standards of his day. Pruitt tried to get a Chick-fil-A franchise for his wife. <laughs> Although all he wanted was a job for her that paid at least $200,000 a year. When asked about that pathetic excuse of a scandal, he prattled on about how it's a franchise of faith. If he had tried to get his wife an Arby's, he might have been gone that much sooner. But that is why I thought Scott Pruitt would not be going anywhere. If this presidency has proved anything, it's how the evangelical community will look past all manner of graft and unethical behavior if it means they get their way. I wasn't able to find the part of the Bible that states the ends justify the means. Matthew 25:23 reads, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. This could refer to the stewardship over the earth outlined in the book of Genesis, which no one but these people takes literally. The irony that this could inspire conviction over treating the earth poorly will forever be lost on them. Irony is not their strong suit. Instead, Scott Pruitt is seen as having been faithful over the EPA, and he will be rewarded with heaven in the next life and an enjoyable retirement from public service in this one. I wish I could end on a hopeful note, but the corruption in this administration runs deep. Current acting EPA leader and former coal lobbyist, Andrew Wheeler, already has scandals to deal with. Worse, he may be good at his job and get stuff done instead of treating the federal government like a scuzzy college roommate trying to claw favors. <laughs> Nothing he will want to get done will be good. Our previous Republican president, George W. Bush, once said, freedom of religion doesn't mean freedom from religion, but for those in charge of the federal government, it should be. 
Our representative democracy has been hijacked by people who want to transform it into a theocracy and who will accept pandering from transparent hypocrites to do so. It's better to have people in charge who want to go to the Smithsonian Institute than the Creation Museum. Thank you. Keep it going for Devin Whitlock, everybody. Before we go on to our next op-ed, I would like to welcome to the stage for a quick voicemail op-ed wherein we call a real person and yell at them. Co-producer of The Skewer, Erica Dreisbach. Who are you calling? I'm calling the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Civil Rights. He's asking if I want to continue in Spanish. I do not. I know, right? It's probably him in a very sp bad Spanish accent. Hola. No, he would definitely hola. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, it does take a little bit of time. I should have asked. I should have asked Devin. What's your like last paragraph? What does that start with? And then we could have queued this up. Some real stagecraft. Yeah. But we have great patter. Here we go. Press 9 to leave a message. Hey. We're on the home stretch. Now you guys can do this too by calling the Department of Homeland Security. And you can just yell at them. No human ever answers. It's just a voicemail. And you just yell. Like me. Soon, really soon. Here we go. Here we go. This is a message for Secretary Nielsen. Number one, your name has too many J's. <laughs> Number two, you need to reunite the families. Your mandate comes from the people. I am a people. I am telling you, you have no other priority than that, and you need to quit your job and turn yourself into the Hague for crimes against humanity. Number three, children are dying because of the conditions at the center in Dilly, Texas. So when you're done at the Hague, get yourself extradited back to the U.S. to stand trial for murder. You're a blonde criminal, which is the worst. Thank you. Bye. I mean, yeah, that did it. That wow. <laughs> Our third op-ed writer of the evening is the product of nine years in San Francisco and eight years in St. Paul. Rosamund Lannan is pleasantly surprised to have lived in Chicago for over a decade. During that time, she has been published by internet periodicals, performed stories around the city, and consumed many, many carne asada burritos. These days, she's pretty into speculative fiction, co-hosting Lady Live Lit Show, Miss Spoken, and trying to write essays that make you feel things, think things, or at the very least, laugh. Join her at Miss Spoken on August 29th. The theme is I Sing the Body Electric. Please welcome to the stage, Rosamund Lannan. <laughs> This well-known turtle researcher, it's gonna get sexy, you guys. Uh, no, it is, actually. Uh, it did get sexy, actually. This well-known turtle researcher, Richard Vogt, 
Uh, he was supposed to be honored at an event uh, for his lifelong work, but instead, he gave a presentation on river turtles that had pictures of scantily clad women. But um bum. I mean, scientists, am I right? <laughs> if you grew up in the 90s and were exposed to a bare minimum of popular culture, you know that scientists are either supervillains or saints. <laughs> They're the people that tell the hero that something is coming, that the DNA has gone rogue, <laughs> that those blinks on the computer mean something real bad is going to happen real soon. Scientists are both oracles and lifesavers. Something they said 40 minutes ago in the movie comes back to save the hero in the end. Or they built a mega death ray to take out humanity. It can go both ways. Like scientists, take Jurassic Park. You've got Dr. Alan Grant, brilliant asshole with a heart of gold. Dr. Ellie Sattler, brilliant angel with a heart of gold. No one arguing with me about this. You got Dr. Ian Malcolm. Yeah, that's right. I don't know what lady said that, but you're getting my finger guns. Uh, I'm like, someone get this. Dr. Lewis Dodgson, evil jerk briefly on screen who stashes fertilized dino embryos in a shaving cream can. You've got Dr. Harding, who treats a triceratops and bails for the mainland. He's in there for like two minutes. And let's not forget Dr. Wu, played by the inimitable B.D. Wong, who gives a tour of the facilities, then bails for the mainland. Um, scientists, they can go both ways. Like, let's take my friend Kelsey. Kelsey did not like Jurassic Park, probably because Kelsey was an actual archaeologist. <laughs> Kelsey drove her friends crazy, fuming throughout the movie and fuming about improper classification, and that couldn't really happen. Kelsey was my cool older friend. And by older, I mean I was 10, and she was somewhere vastly older than that. I thought Kelsey was really fun. I thought Kelsey was so much fun I was willing to forgive her for not liking the best movie of all time. My mom had just started a job at the Science Museum of Minnesota, and Kelsey was one of the first people she introduced me to. Kelsey was a real archaeologist, you guys. I was deeply impressed. She was a real archaeologist, and that meant she went on digs and found bones in the dirt, and that was very cool. Kelsey said it could be very boring. <laughs> that sometimes you looked and looked and dug in the dirt and you found nothing. And even when you did find something, you had to go back to a lab and analyze it. And then sometimes, even then, you didn't find what you were looking for. And then you had to go back and dig in the dirt some more and look again. Kelsey told me about giant tents and un uncomfortable tents and giant spiders and long days and cold nights. Kelsey tried to be real about the sheer tedium of the scientific process. <laughs> But I was not convinced. I had seen movies, you guys. As far as I was concerned, Kelsey was the coolest person in the world with the coolest job. Kelsey was short like I was, with long, light brown hair she wore exactly one way, parted in the middle and pulled back in a ponytail, the official hairstyle of women and men who don't care about their hair. <laughs> Kelsey favored Birkenstocks, cargo shorts, and T-shirts, which she tucked into the cargo shorts. She looked like a scientist on her day off, which, it, which is exactly what she was. 
she worked as an instructor at the museum, and as part of that, uh, she took summer camp groups on digs, taking busloads of kids to Iowa, a lush place full of fossils, if you didn't know. To, I'm actually right. It's very fossil-rich. Uh, to, to scrape through piles of pebbles in hopes of finding a T-Rex skull. Kelsey li- liked to talk about coprolites, which is what archaeologists call poop. She was particularly into her own poop. She was fond of telling me that because she was a vegetarian, she was making very good coprolites. Her poop would be more interesting to archaeologists down the line because meat decays and disintegrates, but corn and carrots are forever. A colorful gift to future Kelsey's. When Kelsey wasn't chartering preteen expeditions, uh, she worked in in collections, And sometimes, this was really cool, my mom would bring me to work, and there was no camp in session, and Kelsey would let me follow her around collections. She brought me back to the staff-only area, where she showed me fossils and skeletons and trilobites. And normally, she kept a leisurely leisurely pace on these expeditions. She'd, like, stop to pull something out of a drawer or down from a shelf. But one time, she stopped in her tracks... Uh, There's this middle-aged man who stood about 20 feet away talking to a group of white-coated lab assistants. And he was tall and lean with close-cropped graying hair. And dead stop, Kelsey turned around and stiffened as soon as she saw him. Are you okay if we leave now? Sure. We walked out to the King Tut exhibit and stood behind a sarcophagus. Sorry, that's Dr. Morris. I don't really like running into him. He doesn't think girls are very smart. Oh, sorry, I I just don't want to deal with him. He sucks. Kelsey, not smart. Blasphemy. She was like at least 25 (laughs) and had a degree in archaeology. She was so old and so smart. (laughs) How could anyone think otherwise? I was angry, but even at 10, I was not particularly surprised. I knew there were boys who did not think girls were smart. And I would eventually master what Kelsey did. Stop, turn around, walk away. Decide it's not worth taking him on this time. And then this time becomes every time. And every time becomes you never really end up doing what you want to do because it's just not worth it to take people on. Women leave science. Women leave tech. Women live leave engineering. Women leave STEM. Kelsey did not continue to pursue archaeology. And I'm not saying it's because of Dr. Morris, but I hate that he may have had any part. A million small experiences tend to add up. But look, I'm going to end this on a non-bummer note. Even five years ago, I never thought we'd be having this conversation. We'd roll our eyes at sexy turtle scientists and his sexy turtle slides. But, like, he'd get a pass. No one would call him out, or they would call him out, and no one would listen to them. And now, Richard Richard Vogt, when I think of him, all I'm going to think about is sexy turtle slides. He has a New York Times article, probably never for the reasons he ever wanted. (laughs) It is the tiniest, slowest turtle foot of a step, accompanied, as you'll hear in the other news stories, by five legislative steps back. But it is something. People like to put scientists on pedestals, but they're pretty human, which means they can learn. And I don't buy that being misogynist is inextricably intertwined with being a brilliant researcher. Exhibit A, Kelsey. 
<laughs> Exhibit B, Jim Gerholt. You don't know who that is, but I'm about to tell you. <laughs> Jim Gerholt, man. Jim taught a class at the Science Museum of Minnesota called Remarkable Reptiles, which was, as you can imagine, about reptiles, amphibians, and other insorted invertebrates. That was his description. Uh, his classes were especially popular with the camp-in program. Jim would bust out a deadly scorpion in its little tank and walk it around the room watching children shriek, and right when you were coming down from that, he'd hit you with an emerald tree boa wrapped snug around his shoulders like a mink stole. <laughs> he was a master of herpetological presentation and one of the most socially awkward people I've ever met. Jim had fluffy white hair and spoke in a monotone. He handled reptiles, amphibians, and assorted invertebrates with a quick but methodical grace, but trying to have a conversation with Jim Gerholt felt like walking on the dark side of the moon. Jim was super freaking weird, but to everyone equally, showing that it's very possible to handle snakes for a living without being one. <laughs> One more round of applause and thank you to Rosamund Lannan. <laughs> Turtle drama. Anyway, our final op-ed performer is a skewer veteran making his fourth appearance tonight. Not his fourth appearance tonight, his fourth appearance, which is tonight. He works an office job no one cares about. And portray... <laughs> yeah and portrays human fighter Ruddy Dayton on my RPG podcast, Shuffle Quest. He is always texting me about how he has never been horny. <laughs> I hate it. Please welcome Joe Anderson. Hello, can everyone hear me? And yes. it's true. I, uh... I don't support Thomas Wedding because wedding is a type of horny with paperwork. <laughs> I will be there, of course. <clears throat> I'm going to start with a high concept metaphor. Apologies in advance if this is hard to follow, but I want everyone to know what I learned in grad school. Online is a big toilet everyone drinks out of. There is no money. There is no exchange of services. The only thing that matters is how many people look at you as you drink from the toilet. <laughs> Everyone is at the toilet. I'm there. I'm like, I'm really there. <laughs> For a long time, the boomers were afraid of it. Don't trust anything you hear at the toilet, they said. Now they drank out of the toilet so much they anamorphed into racist frogs. Three times a day, I have to tell myself to walk away, and then 20 minutes, 20 minutes go by, and I start to wonder, what's happening at the toilet? <laughs> I deleted my Facebook, and I don't post on Twitter anymore. I had to stop posting, because posting is a rush. <laughs> I would send my bad opinion into the world, and by the end of the day, a Vietnam vet is trying to get me fired because I kept saying Frasier is anime. 
We would all be better if we logged off, but tonight I want to talk about a man who needs to stop posting and log off more than anyone. Elon Musk. Yes. <laughs> Musk, the CEO of Tesla, has $20 billion, and he cannot stop drinking from the toilet. <laughs> I originally wanted to write about Elon Musk because of a local angle. He reached an agreement with Rahm Emanuel to build a hyperloop that goes from O'Hare to downtown. It's a dream deal for Rahm because Musk's company are going to pay for everything, and it fulfills the mayor's wet dream of a faster blue line without poor people. <laughs> But no, Musk spent July posting on Twitter nonstop. As everyone here knows, last month, a kid's soccer team in Thailand got trapped in a cave that flooded because of heavy rain. I honestly don't remember why the kids went into the cave in the first place. I think they wanted to play cave soccer. The rescue operation was extremely complicated. The path to the kids and back out was in total darkness, extremely winding, and in part so narrow divers could barely fit through with their air tanks. Plus, time was a factor. More heavy rain was coming, and there was a risk that a diver could get to the kids and lose track of time because they started playing cave soccer. <laughs> As the rescue effort materialized, Musk went on tw a Twitter bender talking about how he was designing a kids' submarine that will save the day. He kept posting videos of his team testing his weird underwater child capsules at a pool at a nearby school. In case you were wondering, it was a charter school. <laughs> the lead diver, Vernon Unsworth, who saved the day, didn't use the submarine because it was a rigid tube <laughs> that literally could not navigate the twists and turns. This hurt Musk's feelings, so he went online and called the guy a pedophile. Elon's countless fans immediately agreed that this guy was definitely a pedophile. I want everyone uh, with me to do an empathy exercise right now. I want you to close your eyes. Imagine you just got done with the most challenging cave rescue of your life. You saved a bunch of damp, idiot kids from a flooded cave, and in the process, a diver drowned. The whole time, some rich weirdo keeps sending Postmates delivery guys to you with weird underwater child coffins. And then because you didn't send him a handwritten note thanking him for his useless tween sarcophagus, he hops on Twitter and tells his personal army that you fuck kids. All his loyal soldiers they started hooting and hollering and commenced making a ruckus, and they tried to ruin your life. Also, his team of engineers left the stupid submarine in the cave. Musk is lashing out because he has cultivated a personal mythology of being Tony Stark, and then it's quickly unraveling. This year, Tesla kept missing production targets for the Model 3, the car that was going to make the company profitable and revolutionize affordable electric vehicles. There were murmurings that Tesla could go bankrupt. On the Q1 earnings call this year, investors had some concerns, like, is this company real? <laughs> and Musk handed this, handled this by letting a groveling fanboy YouTuber ask questions on the call. 
I refused to learn who the YouTuber was <laughs> so I could pretend guys with yachts had to listen to the ramblings of the eugenics gamer. <laughs> Just two weeks ago, Tesla sent a memo to all its suppliers asking if suppliers could just give back some of the money they paid. <laughs> Tesla explained that they felt they deserved the free money because it was essential to the company's continued operation and future prob uh, profitability. He likes to frame himself as a self-made brain genius, but that's a lie. Originally from South Africa, his father, Errol Musk, owned and operated an emerald mine in Zambia. Being born regular rich definitely gives you a leg up in life. But it pales in comparison to being born with all of the apartheid chaos emeralds. <laughs> Elon's father also married and fathered two kids with his stepdaughter. Other than that, he was a pretty normal dad. <laughs> I used to think guys who replied to tweets from porn stars were the saddest people online. <laughs> I've since seen the error of my ways. <laughs> guys who reply to porn stars to ask for feet pics are the troops. <laughs> it takes dedication to beg the sweeties to show their feeties. I have never been horny, but I respect the craft. <laughs> no, the worst people online are the guys who defend asshole billionaires like Musk. It's pathetic because they do so without any benefit to themselves. <laughs> it feels good when you clap. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, anytime someone pointed out that Musk's child submarine plan sucked ass or was clearly a cynical attempt to boost his personal brand, an army of weirdos would show up and say the same exact thing. At least he tried. What did you ever do to help? And that's a fair question. So let me respond. I saved the same number of kids, bitch. <laughs> I cannot stress how large the Musk Defense Brigade is. It's upsetting because it means a sizable plurality of people are just absolute bootlickers. There are people who walk among us who decide, today I will lick boot for free. <laughs> we ride the train and bus with these people. Last week I was jogging on the Lakeshore Path and three bike cops rode by and some country club asshole saluted them and thanked them for their what? service. <laughs> the cop bootlicker is a common subtype and one that I encountered a lot growing up. I grew up southwest of the city just outside Mount Greenwood. If you aren't familiar with Mount Greenwood, it's a good neighborhood to play softball with people who think the Irish had it worse than the slaves. <laughs> but the people who lick the boots of Musk and other science of tech should freak everyone out. The persistent belief that Silicon Valley is a hub of innovation is dangerous. These people think apps will save us. They won't. 
The strongest evidence that they won't is that Spotify keeps fucking insisting I love reggae. <laughs> the Silicon Valley mindset, the culture that produced the mythology of Musk's, uh, sucks ass because it suggests a total abdication of any sort of collective project. It implicitly accepts the framing that the only thing that will make the world better is the conviction of a celebrity technologist whose judgment is divine. People like Musk, a guy who loves to shoot his dumb car into space, <laughs> or Mark Zuckerberg, who thinks Holocaust denial is a valuable perspective that needs to be on Facebook. Musk has one weakness, though, and it's one we can all exploit. He drinks from the toilet. <laughs> He actually reads what people tweet at him. He gets worked up when you, people make fun of Tesla and when you point out that his dad is a powerful wizard that turns stepsisters into stepmoms. <laughs> I, okay, I promised my therapist I wouldn't tweet, but, but everyone here can and should tweet at Elon Musk. My only advice is that uh, if you do it too much, you might start to feel like isolated and alone and that you're wasting your precious time on this earth. Those are fake feelings. <laughs> Keep posting. Once more for Joe Anderson. Thanks. Okay, a number of things. One, like yesterday, Joe sent me like a screenshot of his Spotify recommendations where it wanted him to listen to Latin pop. And he, and he like the little picture that came with it, he sent me a screenshot of it and he's like, Tom, this is too horny because it was like a, a woman going like... Uh, also... I am on G-Chat with him literally all day, every day, and he says hooting and hollering like a thousand times every hour. <laughs> also, just today, like I saw this between getting home from work and coming here, Elon Musk got back on the toilet and was like, hey, any game developers want to develop some rad video games for the Tesla, for this like the center console. Motherfuckers trying to get people to like play Counter-Strike while they're driving their car. <laughs> and predictably, everyone the replies is like, thank you, Daddy Elon, can't wait. Uh, it's, it's a thing. Anyway, enough of that. It's time for round two of the news quiz. <laughs> Kevin Johnson, get up on stage and have a news quiz. I'm back. Uh, also, don't don't forget to um, donate in the box at the front. All the writers and performers and such, they get a split of that money, so you can pay for the arts. It's like it's like what NPR tells you to do, except it's like you can see it. Anyway, um, instead of just hear it, I guess I don't know. Anyway, uh, I need another volunteer. Adam. Are you raising your hand? Yeah. Fucking do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll come for you later, Lawson. For the record, these questions were made for me. 
one was one was made. Oh, for... one. Oh, okay. You need to use the oh, mic. Actually, okay. Sorry, we all work together. <laughs> we all work together. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know you. What's your name? <laughs> My name's Jackie. Okay. Well. Say hi, Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Yay, we did it. Okay. All right. So you know how the game works because you just saw it. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Yes. I just needed you to, you know. Okay. Anyway. <clears throat> right. Um. Your first story. Pornhub uses haptic feedback and screen reader technology to empower blind users. <laughs> Story two. Florida officer accuses Burger King of putting dirt in food. Turns out, it was seasoning. <laughs> Story three. The U.S. Postal Service is to pay $3.5 million for using the wrong Statue of Liberty on a stamp. First one. Oh, you're right. Yes! <laughs> so unfortunately, they're not doing anything for blind people, but they are adding subtitles <laughs> for the deaf and hard of hearing. So you can, I guess, hear all of those grunts and mumps and all of that great acting. Okay, the second set of stories. Families earning roughly $100,000 now qualify as low income in California's Bay Area. It sounds right, but is it, motherfuckers? Okay. okay, story two. Man arrested for exercising naked at Planet Fitness. I guess it's not so judgment-free after all. And story three, the, I guess, the word of the fucking day. Um, people are petitioning to summon the Thundercats hero, uh, sorry, the Thundercats villain, Mumra, from the recently opened black sarcophagus in Egypt. Sarcophagus is the word of the day. It is. There's so many stories. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with three. Oh, you are correct. Yeah! I'm just saying you said no one won this game, and I really want to win this game now. Yeah, I've, I've done this game 12 different times, and no one has gone three for three. So, uh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll see, Jackie. Anyway, okay. um, so yeah, the, the petition is actually to allow people to drink the mummy juice from this probably cursed sarcophagus. Yeah, um, yeah. The organizer says, please stop trying to tell me the skeleton juice is mostly sewage. That's, an, <laughs> that's impossible. Everyone knows skeletons cannot poop. Okay. You gotta bring it on home, Jackie. All right. I know. So much pressure. I know. There's a lot of pressure. Okay, story one. Spiders can fly hundreds of miles using electricity. Would I make that up? Maybe. <laughs> story two. A U.S. court uh, declares that Detroit students have no right of access to literacy. Ooh. Story three. Washington, D.C. launches a three-year survey into differences in saliva throughout their cat population to mitigate allergens. <laughs> I'm going to go with number three. <laughs> I have a long-running... She's allergic to cats. I have a long-running thing that I'm going to collect a jar of cat saliva to... Anyway. Also, uh, that he's just going to bring a cat and just like have it lick my keyboard. <laughs> there's lots of things. 
So, yes, yes, that, you, okay, yeah, you got it. Collusion is not a crime. I make the laws at Skewerville. I say it is. It's a big one. It's the biggest one you can do. I, I cannot rebut that or refute that. Um, it's been you still honor. get a sticker, too, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess congratulations, Jackie. You did it. She's doing awkward dances, and I don't know what any of this is about. Um, so yeah, well, I guess I, I see the floor to uh, Thomas Harrison again. Clap for this man and the upcoming debate. Thank you once again to Kevin Johnson for the fake news quiz. And despite the fact that there was definite collusion in one of them, one of them was an inside joke specifically to you. Congratulations to Jackie for defeating the quiz. Uh, just to clarify, um, Washington, D.C. actually is counting all of the cats in Washington, D.C. Like, like numbering, like one, one, two, three? Yeah, yeah, that's how w counting works, yes. So just over like three, over like th the course of three years for 1.5 million, they're just counting every cat that is either a pet or feral in Washington, D.C. It is a thing. This there you go. Rules. I love that. <laughs> awesome. Well, okay, okay. We have reached the debate portion of the evening. The portion of the evening where we, we, we take on a news story so big, so multifaceted, that no one opinion is going to cover it all. In fact, we need two opposing opinions, and we need you, the crowd, to determine which opinion is correct. Before we get to that, though, I want to mention again that we have fucking shit for sale, like our Best of 2017 book with great <laughs> shit from people like myself and Joe and uh, Erica, who's about to come up on stage. And uh, it's good. It's good. You can buy it. Also, we got stickers. I just need to say it because otherwise Erica will get mad at me. Anyway, so <laughs> now to get our debaters to the stage. Our first debater is a writer, artist, poet, and computer programmer from Chicago. She is co-producer of this very show, The Skewer, and she is very funny and nice and good, and you'll like her. Please welcome <laughs> Erica Trispach. And our second debater is a published author, web developer, educator, and social media guru. A guru. She is also a content producer on the actual play RPG podcast, Tabletop Potluck. Please welcome to the stage, Noah Heinrich. The question now becomes, what is the debate topic? Well, I'll tell you. This month, rather, er, last month, July, you know the one, it was revealed that Actual Russian spy Marina, Maria Butina. I always want to say Marina Butina, but it's not. It's Maria Butina. Actual Russian spy Maria Butina 
was infiltrating the NRA in order to further Russian interests. It was revealed that she was using sex as a method to integrate herself into the NRA, which is to say, she, as Joe will like appreciate, she was using horny as a weapon to damage America. This is unacceptable, obviously. So the question becomes, what do we do to protect ourselves as a nation from the grim threat of horny? Noah, what will you be arguing? I am going to be arguing that in order to defend ourselves, we need to weaponize horny for our own ends. <laughs> Erica, what will you be arguing? Ban horny forever. <laughs> Oh, it's a real, it's a real one. It's a debate, I tell you. The way this works, each of our fine debatants is going to have five minutes with which to present their opening arguments to woo you, the crowd. After which, I will come back on stage with a list of weird questions that they have not been provided with in advance. I will ask them to them, and they will be forced to answer them on the spot. After which, they will give, be given one additional minute to win your hearts with their closing statements, at which point you will decide the victor. Who wishes to go first? Thank you. Horny. From late 18th century slang, to have the horn, meaning a boner. I do not like the word horny. It evokes sexually transmitted diseases and mean teenage boys laughing and pressuring me to eat the green M&Ms and not telling me why. Both things which are very unpleasant. So I would very much like to ban the word horny forever. But that is not an issue here today. Despite what my opponent would have you believe, I am in favor of consensual wanted horniness in its proper context. But is horny ever necessary for competent political governance? Obviously not. Is horny a distraction at best and a massive security vulnerability at worst? Obviously, yes. You might be thinking, okay, but Erica, we can't just... I don't know, this is just off the top, but we can't chemically castrate all politicians and registered operatives for such time as they're employed in the United States political life. We can't demand that political men take legally mandated, I don't know, diethyl silvestrol or medroxyprogesterone acetate and potentially grow breasts. And similarly, that political women take it and develop huge nipples. We can't treat politicians the way they treat sex criminals in Indonesia. But, like, why not? <laughs> Lawmakers have asked us to submit to TSA body scans, to ICE checkpoints, to accept concentration camps for families and children, and an inevitable slide toward an authoritarian white ethnostate. Is it too much to ask that in return, for a while, they have weird boobs and lose interest in banging. No. It's not too much to ask. They'd be getting off easy, and they wouldn't be getting off at all. Imagine the president's 
we would have had if we'd banned horny. Imagine a not horny Bill Clinton. Think of what that Rhodes Scholar mind could have come up with instead of don't ask, don't tell. Think of what he could have done with the Democratic majority in his first term Congress if he'd had the sheer free time. Maybe single-payer health care. Maybe, maybe go nuts. Maybe guaranteed living wage. Maybe reparations. Yeah. Imagine an unhorny JFK politely nodding at Marilyn Monroe when she wishes him a breathy happy birthday, Mr. President. Solving the Cuban Missile Crisis was something better than a biggest dick contest. Imagine a not horny Donald Trump. Slim. Cogent. Confident in a non-clinically narcissistic way. But I don't just propose banning horniness for sex. Why stop there? Some of the most radical evildoers in government are ace with respect to humans, but crazy horny for the destruction of civil life. Imagine John Bolton's horniness for nuclear war. Gone. Paul Ryan's horniness to skullfuck Medicare. Mitch McConnell's horniness to walk onto the Senate floor clad in Sauron's armor of Orthanc at the Battle of Daggerlad, laughing maniacally and slashing the throats of peasants and Democrats. All those horny agendi, gone. I'll leave you with this. Remember Anthony Weiner? Remember seeing his Anthony Weiner packaged up in his gray boxer briefs because his extramarital horniness for underage Twitter teens had made national news? Remember the October 28th Comey letter? Of course you do. Uh, one of many factors that tipped the election to President Pussy Grab. Well, the reason that James Tallboy Comey reopened the Clinton investigation was because of campaign emails found on a seized Wiener laptop that would never have seen the light of day had he kept his dick in the dark. So what did Horny get us? The horniest and worst president in United States history. Coincidence, obviously not. We need less Horny. Not more. Before I begin, I'd like to thank Tom for this new and exciting opportunity to bring shame on my family. And I'd like to, apo- I'd like to apologize to... I am sorry, I'm blanking on your name all of a sudden. Joe. Joe. I'd like to apologize to Joe, because there's going to be a lot of horny here tonight. So, I'm so sorry for that. Esteemed colleagues, we are living in dangerous times. One of our most beloved institutions, the NRA, has been infiltrated and completely and utterly destroyed. Yep, no more NRA. How sad. We know who the culprit was, literal Russian spy and Bond villain Maria Butina. And furthermore, we know the means by which she accomplished this heinous, heinous act. Our dear beloved National Rifle Association was brought low by some tight Slavic poontang. (laughs) Yes, our worst fears have come true. Russia has deployed hot singles in our area. (laughs) And they're looking for deep, dirty collusion. 
The attack isn't imminent. It has already begun. Who knows what could be next to fall? Our path, folks, is clear. We need to fight back with the same weaponry. The power of Horny will be our path to victory. Our arsenal is woefully underdeveloped. That didn't get anything okay. But I know that with a little American ingenuity, we'll be prepared, be prepared when the next Horny War begins. It isn't enough to simply close the Horny Gap with Russia, however. We need to surpass them and become the most undisputedly horny nation on earth so that nobody, and I do mean nobody, will dare catfish us again. <laughs> to do so, we must tap into our most precious resource, the queer community. Gay, lesbian, bi, pan, trans, and so on. Every beautiful letter in that abbreviation is going to be pressed into service. <laughs> Sure, Moscow is expecting us to send Hollywood, uh, Hollywood bombshells after their men and all-American studs after their women. But we're not going to do what they expect, are we? <laughs> we're going to hit them from every direction until they don't know which way is up. Imagine, if you will, you are Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev. Are you prepared for a statuesque non-binary person to touch your arm and smile at you like the first sunrise after months of Siberian winter? <laughs> no. Nobody can be prepared for that. Is Federation Chairwoman Valentina Matyevenko ready for a butch lesbian to awaken feelings in her that she never knew she had? No way. Now, straight friends. You know I love you, and your contributions are valued. <laughs> but let's be honest, we're not going to become a global sexy power with poorly lit dick pics and two minutes of missionary every other Saturday. <laughs> Despite what centuries of media have taught you, no matter how kinky you think you are, you have only scratched the surface of the power. <laughs> we in the LGBT community simply have the edge when it comes to defending our country from below the belt. On top of that, we have an ace in the hole. Yes, the asexuals will be especially dangerous operatives in the cold, hot war. After all, the goal is to turn the enemy on until they make dumbass mistakes, like driving two hours across state lines at 4 a.m. to make a hypothetical, nonspecific example. To this end, sex is a potent but inelegant tool, like opening a jar of pixels with pickles with a baseball bat. Our asexuals will be able to wield the power of horny without succumbing to the effects themselves. Imagine the devastation in Moscow when the asexuals attack. <laughs> of course, the sign of a great leader is that they never ask something of their soldiers that they would not be willing to do themselves. As a proud member of the LGBT community, I am volunteering to lead the first strike. By year's end, I can, should, must, and will top Vladimir Putin. That's right, I am personally going to cuckold the entire Russian government by giving the, their president pleasure like he has never known. This is the sacrifice I make for my country. You're welcome for that. Now, my opponent believes that horny must be outlawed to keep us safe. This is a brave gesture, but it's ultimately a futile one. 
The sexy genie is already out, already out of the erotically shaped bottle. <laughs> and can't be put back unless you have lots and lots of lube. <laughs> I understand the desire to keep your hands, various appendages, and orifices clean. But this is the real world of geopolitics. And the only real way to make sure that we are never dicked down again like we were in 2016 is to make America gay again. <laughs> I'd just like to make a statement to everyone that this debate is incredibly normal. <laughs> now for the question and answer portion of the evening. Erica, the first question's for you. No ban can ever be enforced 100%. It just can't happen. There's going to be people who selfishly indulge in horny despite the danger it poses. They'll find a way around. They'll find a loophole. They'll get horny. What, I, you can pick either, do you, what punishments do you propose for those transgressors? Or if you don't want to do a punishment, how do you convert them to true believers? Ooh. Well. Of course there will be bootleg horny available. <laughs> Which is why I propose a task force of G-spot men to hunt down the bootleggers. Uh, what punishments do I propose? Well, if they're still horny, that can be problematic where punishment, pain, and pleasure kind of mix together in an erotic mode. So I think that the punishment would have to be something um, subtle. And I'm, I thought if I said that slow, I would think of something clever. <laughs> but the important thing is that we don't give up on prohibition like we did with alcohol. That we stay the course. You know, the first 10 years are going to be rocky. You try anything for 10 years, it's going to be super duper rocky. Marriage. <laughs> the skewer, but then it gets smoother. Things work themselves out. We can't just give up. So just because some people defect, you know, it, it's, we gotta keep going, man. Ban horny. Erica, that was very normal. <laughs> Noah, I got a question for you. The classic way to use horny as a geopolitical weapon, an ideological tool, involves some level of deception. You, you trick people, you know, you trick them into being horny, and then you can blackmail them, you know, that's, that's no good. That, that, that's, that's a relic of the patriarchy. How do you propose excising this evil uh, element from your repurposing of horny? Uh, well, Tom, I would like you to, to redirect you to my earlier statement about weaponizing the asexuals of America. <laughs> Sex, blackmail, those are all hard moves. Moves that, pun intended, <laughs> moves that you do as a measure of desperation. Now, I'm, I'm proposing we play kind of a hot and cold game. Flirtation. I'm talking about we, you know, give them a little, little action and then back off. 
come back in, maybe tease him a bit, yes, yes. <laughs> and eventually, their moves become sluggish, predictable. You want to know what Kim Jong-un is, do Kim Jong -un is doing next? If you make a certain province of China that desirable, we know exactly where he's going to go <laughs> with that little game of hot and cold. Yeah, that, that answer is also extremely normal. <laughs> Erica. Advertisers and filmmakers have long relied on that old trope, sex sells. They use it to jazz up their work. They use it to get people interested. How will filmmakers keep their work exciting, enticing, and titillating when they aren't able to utilize horny? I see. So this is based on assuming that I would follow the, let follow the letter of the debate prompt, but I, I diverged. So I think we should be as horny as we want. Whether that's not horny, whether that's super horny, we should watch what we want. We should watch what we want on planes and not think about what our seat mates, mates might think. <laughs> the people who need to not be horny are the ones interacting with the holes of power. The ones who would be interacting with the NRA, our lawmakers. They make a choice. They want the power, then they've got to give up the pee. <laughs> I gotta insist once again, all these answers are so normal. <laughs> Noah, I got a question. Horny is a heady brew that can easily spiral out of control. If we wield horny for justice, how do we avoid becoming drunk with that power and going too far? I'm gonna level with you, Tom. America is a weird, repressed kind of place. <laughs> and so long as everything is done consensually and according to the laws and means of this country, I say that's a win. I think America is overdue for a little bit of loosening up. <laughs> so this isn't a bug of my plan, it's a feature. Very normally said. Um, Rebuttal, these are uh, extraordinary, not normal. This debate has been a banger. <laughs> I didn't mean normal in that way, but you're also correct. Uh, so, normally answered questions all. I have one question that I would like you both to answer. Whoever has an answer first. Feel free to approach the mic and speak upon it. Noah, Erica, in order to prepare for this debate, you doubtless had to research the way horny currently affects our political world, which will make you both uniquely well-prepared to answer this ageless question that's been on my mind for years. What does I moved on her like a bitch mean <laughs> it's a reference to sex with dogs. <laughs> I 
I'm saying that we kind of switch the the personage of that a bit. I moved on her like I'm a bitch. Uh. <laughs> I feel like that is that assumes a little bit of but whatever. <laughs> Donald Trump sucks is the point. <laughs> Excellent answering of questions by both of you. A little round. Now is the time for closing statements. Noah, since you went second in the initial round, uh, you shall go first now. Legendary political theorist and creator of classical realism, Hans Morgenthau, once said that international politics, like all politics, is a struggle for power. In any struggle, somebody ends up on top and somebody also ends up on the bottom. I know if Hans Morgenthau were here with us today, He'd urge us to push our rivals up against a wall, stare deeply into their eyes, and give them a gentle, tender kiss on the mouth. No tongue, but with a gentle parting of the lips that hints at more. <laughs> then, Hans Morgenthau would say, <laughs> a lot of Hans Morgenthau fans in the audience tonight. <laughs> then he would say, you walk away, leaving them to wonder for weeks just what you are together. And finally, when they work up the courage to text us, asking if we want to, I don't know, get a cup of coffee or something, we're going to leave them on red. And boom, we accomplish world peace. Thank you. My opponent would have you believe that we can defeat horny with more horny, that we can solve school shootings by arming teachers and children, that we can kill the Babadook with a second Babadook. <laughs> this is nonsense logic. Nothing can kill the Babadook. We have to shut Horny down. And maybe not just for those in political life. How about for every person with a net worth over, say, $100 million? You want to accumulate wealth at that scale? Sure, but it'll cost you. Imagine that world. Elon Musk and Grimes, a couple that makes me feel very weird and bad inside. Guess what? They're not together. Mark Zuckerberg, he's still a black-eyed immortal with synthetic blood, but... He's not procreating. <laughs> and Donald Trump, son of real estate magnate Fred Trump, he may never have even been conceived on that black autumn day in 1945. Vote for a better future. Vote to ban horny. First off, I'd just like to say, ask Erica where she stole my script for Babadook 2. <laughs> Is the two in Babadook two spelled two t two t o o? No. Okay, good. <laughs> that was a test you passed. <laughs> so a lot of great debating up on this stage. Haymakers from both involved, but only one can take home this beautiful skewer that what has a bauble on the end. <laughs> this is the trophy, just to be clear. Um, I'm going to need an impartial judge to determine who gets the louder applause from the crowd. Who does? It, do I have any? Uh, I mean, I don't feel like you'd be. In, would you be impartial? <laughs> I've already been an impartial judge once. I do not feel impartial. Okay, good. So I've been tested. 
Are either of you impartial? No impartial? Are you impartial, sir? He's, he's impartial. Yeah, you are not to, you are not to judge quality uh, of argument, quality of joke, quality of wit. You just, what's louder? Uh, so, for everyone but you, impartial judge, if you believe the winner of this debate was Erica Dreisbach, arguing for banning horny forever, please applaud right now. If you believe that the winner of this debate arguing for weaponizing horny for justice was Noah Heinrich, please applaud right now. (laughs) Impartial judge, who was the victor of this debate? my words after you get married. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. That's the show. It's over. That's all the, that's all the stuff. We'll catch up with you. I'm hosting next month, September 5th. I'll catch y'all right here. Yeah, also, if you uh, didn't donate and you do want to donate, don't do it. If you don't want to, that's cool too, but like, why would you do us like that? Also, if you're like, the skewer is great, if only I could like go back into the past and experience all the previous ones. One, we record all these as a podcast, you can. And two, you can buy our book, which is a book. Uh, yeah, that's all we got. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to the Skewer Podcast. If you liked what you heard, uh, consider coming to a live show the first Wednesday of every month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. If you can't make it to a show, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Give us a rating, maybe. Uh, Tell your friends if you think the show's good. Uh, Anyway, until next time, we've been the Skewer. Goodbye.